following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, join me if you would in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we find ourselves in the middle of a section of Revelation that is let Jesus Christ dictating letters to the churches. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you kind of, you, you know that there's a lot of talk about God's judgment and there is that, but here's kind of the overview of the whole book of Revelation so you kind of be oriented as to what we're looking at. Chapter one, we see Jesus Christ presented as he really is. When he came and took on human flesh, he, uh, sort of put on a shade, if you will. It covered up some of his divinity. And now in chapter one, we see Jesus in his full divinity and he sees all, he knows all, and he is powerful and glorious. He is the ancient of days. And then in chapter two and three, he dictates these letters to the churches. And then from chapter four onwards, you see, uh, Jesus then judging the sin of creation and that is in rebellion against God. And then, then at the chapter 20, we have, uh, uh, we have this war of Armageddon and Satan is defeated and for a thousand years he is locked up and Jesus rules on the throne of earth and, and then for a time Satan is released once again and he deceives the nations and finally there's one final battle where Satan is definitively and permanently defeated never to be seen or heard from again and he's cast into the lake of fire with, along with his demons that have followed him and people that have followed him as well. And then in chapter 22, there's a new heaven and a new earth. So these letters that we're looking at, there's seven of them, and it was like, uh, it's kind of like imagine back in the days when we used to have investigative journalism, and it was real journalism, they would investigate what was going on and report their findings. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's investigating Ephesus and Pergamon and Thyatira, and then he's giving these letters saying, here's what I see going on in your churches. And because this letter, this book of Revelation was circulated, Ephesus would have heard the news report of what was going on in Smyrna. And Smyrna would have heard of what was going on in Ephesus. So here's this letter to the Pergamum, and here's the headline. Extra, extra, Jesus rebukes Christians who compromise the truth. Now, as I thought about that, I remembered a pastor who encountered one of the members of his church out in the community, and it was obvious that he had been drinking. And so he saw the man, and they had this awkward, uh-oh, kind of moment, and he says, look, I won't say anything about your drinking if you don't say anything about my weight. So he, was, he felt he was guilty of the sin of gluttony. I'm not in a position to know that for sure. But the real answer was not, I won't say anything if you don't say anything. If there really was sin on both sides, the answer is we must both repent. As it was, they compromised on the truth so as to make the situation more comfortable. In, in the book of Revelation, we see there's a temptation to compromise the truth. In fact, it is taking place and Jesus confronts it. We see that we're going to begin with verse 14 and 15. 
But keep your Bible open. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Please stand if you're able to in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of God. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. That you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today and this time of worship that we've already had. We pray for our children as they are in children's church that they would learn and grow in their knowledge of you. And we pray for the churches in our community. Brother Larry's heart was right. He held back tears as he describes the condition of one congregation. We pray for revival for all of our churches. We pray for your strength. If there are any here who don't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would come to you. If there is any here who are hurting in body or spirit, that you'd strengthen them. And we pray for our community that we would indeed see many turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I studied through this passage, I wanted to avoid dealing with the issue head on because one of the things I don't like is when I hear preachers who have a, a hobby horse. A thing that they talk about week in, week out. I don't, I don't want to be that preacher. But then I sat and I, when I studied the passage out, I said, okay, we talked a little bit about this week, last week, and this week it's, it's Jesus' hobby horse, not mine. And so we're going to talk about it. There are two main things that are being addressed. You ready? A perversion of the truth about Jesus and a perversion or compromise of the truth about sin. And can I just tell you, that the challenges that were being faced in the book of Revelation when it had to do with the teaching of the Word of God, it hasn't gone away. And some of it, while it has a different face, at the end result, there still seems to be a desire to alter the truth about Christ, to make Him more palatable to unbelievers, and to alter the truth about sin, to make sin more palatable to unbelievers. Let's talk about this. Number one, uh, th- this week I heard a tale of two Texas preachers. One of them is a very prominent one, and I-, I hate talking about other pastors. I really do. But Jesus is addressing the... You want to, it says the angel of the church is so-and-so. That's most likely the preacher. right? And he is addressing false doctrine, and I, guess what? In 2023, false doctrine doesn't stay in Texas. It comes to a church near you. And so when I saw that a preacher was uh, messing up, I'll, I'll say perverting, the truth about Jesus Christ, it bothered me. Truth matters. So when you misrepresent Jesus in such a way that you deny that He was still divine, that He was still God when He took on human flesh, you're perverting the truth. And a prominent preacher did this. Why would somebody do that? I, here's the reason why some people give Jesus a demotion. Because they want to demote Jesus so they can elevate themselves and claim for themselves stuff that only Jesus can do. So they pervert Jesus. I have a problem with that. 
The second thing is, why would somebody, the second preacher in Texas, and his church apparently was shut down by the church that started him. I'm grateful for that. But he stands in the pulpit and he says, if you are against a certain type of marriage, you are committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they're in love. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. You hate people because... No, I don't hate anybody. In fact, I love them enough to tell them the truth even though they don't want to hear it. A wise man once said, when you want to help yourself, you tell people what they want to hear. When you want to help them, you tell them what they need to hear. What they need to hear is not what Dan says. What they need to hear is what God's Word says. Therefore, I can't compromise the truth of God. Now, it often looks different today than when Revelation was written. But we are continually tempted to alter the biblical portrait, biblical portrait of Jesus, and we are tempted to downplay what Scripture says about sin. I didn't want to talk about sexual sin. But Jesus does. And so I'm going to this morning because that's what the passage deals with. And there is nothing new under the sun. So well, how would we downplay the portrait of Jesus Christ? Well, well, we gave him a demotion when we said he wasn't divine when he took on human flesh. That's not what the Bible teaches. Second way is we might say, well, Jesus, my Jesus, wouldn't send anybody to hell. And I'm like, you better not read the rest of Revelation because that is what he does. He is the judge of the universe, of all creation. And He does send people to hell. We like to say because that our decisions to reject Him send us to hell. Fine, if that makes you feel comfortable, Jesus is the judge, not me and not you. Because if I'm the judge, I'm not saying I'm going to hell. And neither would you. You don't even have the power to put you there. Jesus does. Second way, we downplay the, the, the reality of sin on so many levels. Can I give you one more? Gracious Christians recognize, as a Christian, I know I'm a sinner. And so do you. And because I know I'm a sinner, and Jesus had to forgive me a lot of sin, and sometimes I still fail and need to be forgiven, therefore we say, well, if, if what about the other person? Can't they go to heaven? Well, yeah, they can. But living a lifestyle of sin is saying Jesus is not Lord. And that is happening all over the church in America. I had a wonderful saint ask me a question about lifestyles. Can a person have be a I'll just say it. Can they be gay and go to heaven? Well the answer is yes, but as Christians we all know that we struggle with sin. But it is another matter entirely for me to say. I have an anger problem, but I'm going to keep punching people because that's how God made me. I'm going to keep lying to my wife because I'm a liar by birth. That is rejecting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what it is. A, a decision. Now, I have friends who are Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'll see them in heaven. There is all the difference in the world between struggling in sin and living on sin, in sin on purpose. You following? And we have confused that in America. I think it came from a good place, but we don't have the right to compromise the Word of God. 
I can change things that I have said I want to do. I have a hard time with that. I admit that. I can compromise on a lot of things, but I can't compromise this. Why? Because I didn't write the book. It's the Word of God. I guess I'm preaching this. Revelation 2, 12-7, we see that Jesus rebukes Christians who compromise the truth. Take a look at verse 12-17. through 17. What is shocking though, I want to point this out before I read it, is before He gets to this harsh rebuke, He actually praises them. Jesus praises us when we stay faithful to the truth, especially when it costs us. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamon, most likely angel there means the primary preacher in the church. Maybe not the only preacher, but the primary one. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a sword of judgment. We'll come back to that. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast, yet you held fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So one of their number was killed for his faith. He refused to back off of his faith in Jesus Christ and it cost him his life. And the church stayed faithful to Jesus anyway. That's quite a celebration of a church. Which makes it all the more shocking that by verse 14 he's saying, but you, you allow false teachers in your midst and don't think anything of it. Right? So here's what's going on. Second, we've got to ask the question is, what does it mean where it says you dwell where Satan dwells and Satan's throne is there? Well, the church of Pergamum was surrounded by people and systems that were dominated by Satan. Right? Let's talk about that. First off, there's a, a, a throne-like altar. It looked like a throne, but it was an altar to Zeus in the city of Pergamum. That was Satan's throne. False God. People worshipped him as though he was really the God of the universe. Is there some spiritual reality behind it? Yeah, I think so. But he's not the real God. And then also they worshipped the emperor as God. They were worshipping the government as though it was God. And then they also had this temple to Asclepius. I think I'm saying that right. That is, uh, Asclepius was the serpent god. And his figure is actually still with us today in some places. You'll see sometimes medical symbols and it's got a little snake on it. That's Asclepius. And they had this weird temple to him and you would go there and they'd get you high actually and then you'd fall asleep and with any luck a serpent would crawl over you and heal you. That was what they did. So when he says where Satan dwells and where Satan's thrown, he says, look, the whole place, the people... The government, the medical establishment, I guess, and, and the pagan practices, all of it was dominated by Satan. Every single bit of it. See, people and systems are often ruled by Satan. Boy, oh boy, I sound like an old school preacher, don't I? But it's the truth. In Ephesians 6.12, you've heard it before, you can read it later. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, he, Paul is writing this letter to Christians who are surrounded by this same type of stuff. Our enemy is not the guy sitting in front of us. It's not the girl sitting in front of us. It's the, it's the Satan behind them playing chess with them. Alright? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our real enemy. But against the rulers, against the authorities, what kind? Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. So what he's saying is our real enemy is not just it's not flesh and blood. The real enemy is a spiritual one. And people are in fact dominated by sin and Satan. Not sure if that's true. Hollywood, they fought like cat with tooth and nail to keep a movie out from coming out about sin. Horrible sin. I think that's what it might look like to be dominated by sin and Satan. Jesus sees when our co-workers, classmates, friends, and the government itself is hostile to the message of the cross and biblical truth. Now one of the things that I'm grateful for, but it was awkward at the moment, was that I went to a school to get my, my, my bachelor's degree that was a secular school in a very secular field called sociology. I saw firsthand what it was like to be in a, a program that was intentionally opposed to the things of God. And as a pastor 20 years later, I, when I saw other pastors embracing and promoting Marxism and its child critical theory, I was heartbroken. Marx hated us. And you're adopting his teaching into the pulpit? What are you doing? And so having lived, studied in a system that was ruled by satanic stuff, I saw it when it was coming. And friends that I know started to teach it, although I think they figured out it was the, the wrong direction to go. Listen, Jesus sees when we are surrounded by a culture that's hostile to the gospel, when it is dominated increasingly so by satanic stuff. Worshiping Zeus was satanic. Worshiping the Caesar as God was satanic. Worshiping the serpent god. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? He's satanic. He sees when our employer embraces a new culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which sounds great, but you know in your heart of hearts is a celebration of sin. Jesus sees when you stand in the middle of it and you don't know which way to turn. I need a job. I've got to provide for my family, but now I'm being forced to embrace things that my Lord is against. I don't want to be rude to people. I don't want to be ugly. But I can't lie to them either. And I won't wear a rainbow pennant in June. And I'll continue to pray over my lunch. I have worked for employers that change the rules two different times to hinder me from living out my faith in public. Was I going around preaching to everyone? No. But I prayed over my meal. I went to church on Sunday, but they wouldn't let me wouldn't let me do it anymore. They said I had to come in early had to come in early, even though it hindered me from going to church. Apparently, thankfully, the Supreme Court told the post office that they can't do that to their employees anymore. They have to allow them to go to church. And Christians typically go to church on Sunday. So what I want you to see is Jesus sees when we stay strong. In the face of opposition. He sees that we stand strong when we are surrounded by things and people that are ruled by Satan. He sees when we stand strong. And He sees when we cower. Christian, are you standing strong in the faith? What does Jesus see? Jesus saw the good in Pergamum. Which is what makes it all the more shocking when He begins to confront them because Jesus confronts us when we Compromise the truth. Look at verse 14 and 15. 
But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is all of this? As a preacher, my goal has always been to make the Bible understandable. And once you understand this, you'll perhaps understand my passion this morning. Balaam is an Old Testament figure. He was not a, he was a pagan priest. Or a prophet, rather. And for some reason, occasionally God would speak to him. And so King Balak sees that God has delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and when enemy armies come at the Israelites, they keep losing, even though they're not trained soldiers, they're just slaves who were set free. They know something's up. They should not be able to beat these battle-hardened soldiers with good technology. So he calls, we need, must, we need divine intervention. So he calls for Balaam. And Balaam, he says, I, I can only say what God allows me to say. And so they keeps offering more and more money. And finally, Balaam says, okay, I'll come and talk to Balaam. On the way, you probably remember the story. Balaam is on this donkey. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus before he was born. And he, he kind of dodges. The, 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 the donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. The prophet who's supposed to see and hear from God doesn't see the angel of the Lord standing right in front of him. So the, the donkey ducks, ducks to the side and smashes Balaam's foot against the wall. And he gets angry and he's, all of a sudden he, he's actually hitting the donkey. Finally, the angel of the Lord appears and he allows, the, he allows Balaam to see him and he's like, oh shoot, I should have stayed home. And so he goes, I, I realize my mistake, I'm going to go back home. And the angel of the Lord's like, no, you go ahead, but you can't say anything but what I, have, what I tell you to say. Okay, so he shows up in Balaam. Balak take, keeps taking him all these places. Look at him from up here. Look him from this mountaintop. And every time Balaam goes to speak, he, he pronounces blessing on them. He says, how can I curse what God has blessed? And finally, Balaam's, Balak's had it. He says, go home. I was prepared and able to make you rich if you would just curse my enemies. And he's like, I told you, I can't do anything but say what God told me to say. Somewhere in the conversation, it's not recorded until we find out later, here's what Balaam counseled them. You ready? God, I can't speak against God, but if you can entice the people of God to engage in pagan worship, and in, you can probably do this if you send the Moabite women among them, because they're good looking, you get them to have sex with the Moabite women, sexual sin, those people are off limits for you, and you get them to worship Baal, God Himself will curse them. And that is what happened. So He's saying, you have people in your church who have embraced that talk. Go ahead and, and be sexually immoral with the unbelieving women and go to the temple of, they go to the temple of Zeus. It's all good. Why do they do this? Perhaps to profit themselves money. I don't know that for sure. But that was essentially what he's teaching. Sexual immorality, go join the pagan worship. Christians, God's not okay with that. But then he goes on to say, similarly, you have those of the Nicolaitans who embrace the teaching of Nicholas. We saw this last week and essentially it was a form of Gnosticism. Nobody in America walks around saying, I'm a Gnostic. But there are similarities that we've already talked about. But here's what the Gnostics believe. 
they believed that Jesus was not fully God when He died on the cross. He was just human. They believed that what you did in your body didn't matter because you are at the ultimate level a spiritual being. Therefore, you can sin and it's all good. Go ahead and compromise and go against what the Bible says because the body doesn't matter. You're going to get a new one when you get to heaven. Sin all you want. And it's not hard to imagine why that had some appeal to it. Avoid the opposition of Rome, of the Caesars. Uh, avoid the opposition of your neighbors. Get to keep your job and not lose it because you're standing for Jesus. Win. It's a win-win-win, except for the fact that Jesus stands there and says, I have this against you. See, compromise threatens our relationship with God. What Balaam counseled Balak to do was get Israel to compromise their relationship with God for sexual sin and false gods. And it worked. Because compromise threatens our relationship with Jesus and it leads to bad behavior. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, don't turn there, check it out later, Paul writes this letter to Timothy telling him how to pastor the Ephesians. And he says, oh yeah, hey Tim, guard your life and doctrine. Double dumb read. Pastor Rob, guard your life and doctrine. Dan, life doctrine. Why? Because bad behavior follows bad doctrine the way the sunrise follows the sunset. Bad behavior follows bad doctrine the way the sunrise follows the sunset. I don't want to be this overly picky Baptist preacher. But I don't think it's that picky to say you shouldn't tell people that Jesus wasn't really God when He walked among us. So that you can elevate yourself. Don't demote Jesus to make yourself look better. Right? So this is happening in America. There is nothing new under the sun. Satan cannot pry you and I out of, uh, out of the Savior's hand, but he will tempt us to compromise the truth and to sin in order to fit in, to look enlightened, to keep our job, to, to look cool and not be harassed. Nothing new under the sun. Christian, truth matters to Jesus. Does it matter to you? Jesus confronts us when we compromise the truth. And then in verse 16, He commands us to repent of compromise. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 16 is a warning to those who would compromise God's truth. Listen, I can compromise a lot of things. Baptists, we are not known for compromise. You may be aware of that. Can I tell you, I can compromise things that I like and prefer, but I can't compromise what God says. Some of you don't think drums should be allowed and music, but the Bible doesn't say that. Some think the pastor should wear a suit, and I do, because I love you guys. I think some of you dig it when the preacher wears a suit. But I don't think Jesus cares. Right? We can compromise on things that are not specifically stated in the Scripture. But we cannot compromise what's specifically stated in the Scripture. And that is what's going on. Sometimes if I was going to make a... This is a stab in the dark. This is a, a hypothesis that I have 
based on experience as a pastor. Sometimes we confuse our traditions with biblical truth. Does that mean our traditions are wrong? No. But it does make it harder to recognize the counterfeit from the real when we confuse our traditions with biblical truth. Baptists would never do that, though, would we? Watch it. We would, and we do. But Jesus is warning us not to compromise God's truth. And he says, where he says this weird thing, it seems weird at first, this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's, it's a broad sword, a big one that's cut, it's got double-edged, it's a sword of judgment. In Revelation 19.15, it shows up again, it says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus wouldn't judge sin. But there He is. This is a warning to Christians not to compromise the truth. doesn't mean be ugly to people that are living in sin. We can't do that. I had a conversation with somebody just the other night who was living in sin. It was quite pleasant overall. We don't have to be ugly when we stand for the truth. But the, stru- the truth is sometimes divisive. It divides out who will follow Jesus and who will not. Who will surrender to Him as Lord and who will not. Now we can compromise on many things, but we cannot compromise God's Word. The Bible is God's Word, not ours. Christian, truth matters. To Jesus. Does it matter to you? Finally, Jesus promises to bless us when we stay faithful to our testimony of faith. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, he who has the Holy Spirit who enables us to hear the truth of, from, about Jesus Christ and to hear the truth of righteousness. That's what he's talking about. The play on Revel, uh, John's Gospel, chapters 14 through 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's going on here? Well, a little bit goes a long way. I'll tell you that when it comes to this hidden manna conversation and the white stone conversation, there's a lot of ink spilled, but it doesn't materially change the point of the passage. So I'll cut to the chase. In the wilderness, when the people of Israel were trying to get to the promised land and were hot, hungry, tired, cranky, bickering over secondary things at best because they're hot, hungry, tired, and homesick. And they're dealing with enemy armies. They probably wondered, how are we going to make it? There's no crops. It's not just that we had a failed crop. There is no crops in this wilderness. But God provides the manna. And they eat that stuff and it keeps them going until they get there. Well, Jesus is saying, look, you who conquer, that is, in Revelation 12, 11, that's defined for us. You and I don't fist fight to conquer. It may sound like a good idea, but we don't. And it's probably not a good idea. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. 
That's how we get into heaven. And by the word of our testimony. Make no mistake, the temptation is there to deny the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we conquer by staying faithful. And you may say, how am I ever going to make it? Guess what Jesus says? I'll, I'll give you the hidden manna. I will make sure that you have what you need to do what you cannot do in your own strength. Because I am God. And you are not. I'll do for you what you can't do for yourself so you can persevere. Then this white stone. What is this? Most likely there were stones that were given out and they were white stones and they were used to invite people to parties. And when you show up, here's my stone. I'm welcome. I'm on the, I'm on the VIP list. Go ahead and check it yourself. I'm in. And what he, Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you a stone and your name's going to be on it. And because of that stone, you are going to be accepted into my heaven. Not because you earned it. You stayed faithful. See, the world may reject you. The world may reject me. But Jesus accepts us. And the question for us, Christian, is that good enough for us that we would stay faithful and not compromise on what we are not allowed to compromise? You and I are ambassadors of Christ. As an ambassador to this world, we have a message to live out and a message to proclaim. We have authority to try different things to reach different people. But we do not have authority to change what God said. And Jesus' hard-hitting investigative journalism says, I have seen that your church is doing this, so repent or I will come against you. Christian, the invitation is rather simple. Determine that you're going to stand firm and not compromise the church. And you and I need to make that determination before opposition comes. Before opposition comes. Finally, as, as Alex comes to play our song of invitation, this ultimately, you, I don't know where you're, where, you're, where you're at with God as far as your spiritual life. Have you called Jesus as Lord and Savior? But this message that we've just heard, it is written to Christians. And the reason it has weight is because it comes from Jesus. So Christians are called to surrender to this truth. But this morning, the same Jesus who calls the church to stand strong on the truth also calls the unbeliever to repent of sin, that's turn away from it, and come to Jesus for salvation. Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins. His blood paid the debt. The Son of God, God Himself, died to pay our debt. He rose again the third day. And now salvation is presented to all, as many as would come to Him. So this morning, if you'd like to turn from sin and turn to Jesus for salvation... I invite you, make your way to the front. I will help you call on Jesus. He will hear you and He will save you. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.